and then maybe we can take some questions and answers at the end. I, I used to be very, very frightened of the idea of, of hell and a God um, and, and punishment and the devil and all that. And ultimately within that of Jesus also. And um, for me, I don't think this is the prescription for everybody, but what, what helped me was studying theology. I don't mean studying what somebody who thought something up yesterday and thought, I'm bound to be right, I need to share with everybody, meant. But somebody, people who had worked and worked and worked with their own thoughts and held those in powerful balance with thoughts throughout the centuries. And I primarily learned that through Jewish friends. And Jewish friends um, took me under their wing when I was studying the Bible and were like, you need to start to learn to ask better questions <laughs> and I'd ask a question and go so do you think God's frightened? ask a better one push it like if God is God God is not a teenager God is not a six year old God is not a self conscious 46 year old God can cope with your questions and so then they showed me questions that are throughout what's called Midrash in the Hebrew Bible or in the Hebrew uh, the Jewish community this process really as well as a collection of a collection of questions as well as a process of asking questions called Midrash, inquiries in the little spaces between the text. It's psychoanalysis millennia before Freud. For those of you who know the story about Abraham and Isaac going up to the top of the mountain that you find in the Hebrew Bible and you find Abraham and Ishmael going up in the Quran, um, the Midrash, written about 550 years before the birth of Christ, takes that text and says... What did they um, talk about when they went down the mountain? <laughs> what a brilliant question. And then it recognises nothing because they didn't go down the mountain together. Abraham went down alone. Isaac never saw his dad again. Abraham died without Isaac ever having received a blessing. No wonder Isaac was utterly paranoid about passing a blessing on. With no blame of him. He was an unblessed son of a patriarch. <laughs> Somehow, and then it says Abraham died and God blessed Isaac. And there's a midrash kind of explaining that must have felt like a disappointment, a second best to be blessed by God instead of your own father. These are ancient texts and questions that are saying this is how seriously you can take the Bible. If you're not taking the Bible that seriously, you um, possibly are not taking it seriously enough. Um, and yourself that seriously also, and your intellect, which isn't about whether you feel like you've got great grammar or whether you've done well in Bible class or in school, but taking yourself seriously enough to go, I have a question. So I'll read you some poems that are questions of mine about all kinds of things, holy and unholy. This poem is called Here is the Lamb of God Who Takes Away the Sin of the World. It's about Jesus. You weren't that perfect weren't lamb pure or cocksure with certainty. You weren't as innocent as you're made out to be. You knew people, you knew power games, knew that the main aim of ambition is ambition. You knew the names of other people's fears because you had plenty of your own. You knew the touch of a friend was not dependent on their cleanliness. And you knew this because you knew need knew the way that story bleeds through actions of a day and how shame makes us play parts that are beneath us. You are beneath us and above us in the song we sang as children. You are in the piss and blood. 
You are spit mixed with mud. You are the rotting hand of God waiting for a hand to hold. You're not gold. You're rock split open. Uh, if you clap, the other poems that you don't clap for will get jealous. So, <laughs> um, I have had the great joy of spending um, time with people who have spent, I suppose, years in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, simply. Aviva Gottlieb Zornberg is a writer who writes about Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 that makes you realise the profound literature that it is, whatever you think about the question of God, that the literature of it is open and brilliant and cautious and wild and wicked and agricultural and poetic and contradictory and all of that is part of the glorious reception of a beloved community to think, how the hell do we make sense of this? And that's the job. And the job is the interpreting community to make sense of it in each age. And that is the dignity to which we're called as literary people, not literal people, literary people. And all of us are literary people. I occasionally try to write a bit of prose, and I know so many prose writers who will get onto a bus and just wait to overhear that gem from somebody. Um, Annie Dillard, probably one of the finest writers of the 20th century, wrote one of her most acclaimed books over the course of 14 months. It's a short book. She averaged full-time she had some money, so she was able to afford to do it, but she averaged 25 words a day. That's what writing's like. It's slow, it's carving, not just out of rock, but out of, I don't know, the sky. And you have to figure out what tool can I use. And so I think this is the great dignity of language. And as a result of having been taught and given confidence by people in the book of Genesis, I have a variety of Genesis poems, and here's one called Nature. There's a little bit about um, babies in this. See if you can spot. Make believe. And on the first day, God made something up. Then everything came along. Seconds, sex, and beasts, and breaths, and rabies. Hunger, healing, lust, and lust's rejections. Swarming things that swarm inside the dirt. Girth and grind and grit and shit and all shit's functions. Rings inside the tree trunk and branches broken by the snow. Pig's hearts and stars. Mystery, suspense and stingrays. Insects, blood and interests and death. Eventually, us. With all our viruses, laments and curiosities. All our songs and made-up stories. And our songs about the stories we've forgotten. And all that we've forgotten, we've forgotten. And to hold it all together, God made time. And those rhyming seasons that display decay. Um, did anybody pick up where you think the babies might be? No. You're very welcome. I mean, I, partly whatever you say... I believe you're probably right because there's this understanding in any form of writing that the person who wrote it has absolutely no power to control how it's going to be interpreted. So whatever you say, I'll be curious rather than like, mm -hmm, you got it wrong. I wouldn't do that to you. Uh, I wanted to play with the idea of uh, predictability. So second sex and beasts. And it almost looks like if you're speed reading it, like it says breasts and babies. It doesn't, it says breaths and rabies. 
but down later on it says viruses, laments, and curiosities. And ultimately, I think that's what it's like to be around children. They are small <laughs> virus bags, um, <laughs> full of lament, and bursting with curiosity. Um, I'm from a family of six. I, I love being around kids. I do wish I had some myself. Um, so I think all of those things, viruses, laments, and curiosities, are part of the human condition. Um, one of the Irish ways of saying curious is overlauna, which means to watch with wonder. And I think that is something that children can do, that um, some of us um, can... I don't, know, I don't think we can go back to it, because that's naive, I think, but find some way to find a new way to look in a new way. Well, I always felt like I was taught and told, sometimes explicitly and sometimes implicitly, that... Um, Boys like me and young men like me and grown men like me were failures as men uh, because I was gay. And I believed that for a very long time and went along to those things. Um, and then I found myself accidentally realising, oh, I don't believe it. <laughs> and realising to go, I'm just this man. Great, and there's no proper shape to be, so I can do what I want and still be a man. Um, and that was a phenomenal relief. Uh, and I don't know where it happened. Mostly, I think, through being around um, friends, women and men, who um, helped me to just... They were themselves, and somehow by some kind of osmosis. It's not like I sat down and wrote out the five points to realise it. Um, and so, uh, because I know of so many men, and I don't think this is a, a competition, I don't think this is more than women or less than women or more than intersex or non-binary or trans people or less... I um, But I, I suppose I do speak from the point of view of being a cisgendered man and the question about what does it mean to be a man. So I've written a sequence of poems called Love Between Men, which aren't as sexy as some of you are wondering about. <laughs> Healthy-minded people from what I hear. Here's a poem called Parlour, and it's a sonnet. I love sonnets. Um, 14, this is a 14-line sonnet. There can be ones of different length. Um, this is about a man called Father Jerry Reynolds, who was a tremendous man. He became a very close friend of mine. <coughs> and he... Um, is credited by people who had planted bombs um, in Belfast and further afield of bringing them to the table of negotiation. Um, he was a gentle-hearted man, grew up on a farm, huge hands, like he had absolute farmer's hands, but he was a great writer. They were as soft as the day. Vitelli never did a um, never did a day of farming in his life, probably. <laughs> um, uh, he was a beautiful writer, and he was a kind, gentle-hearted man, and unafraid. And like one time... He told me the story that he'd gone into a, um, been invited into a room of a, a council meeting for a paramilitary organisation, so a self-appointed army, I suppose, and uh, they had made a great show of bringing him into a building behind which there was a locked door and a locked door and a locked door and locking every door behind him and then sitting down and saying, you can sit here in the corner while we have our important paramilitary organisation meeting here. And they had invited him there as some kind of peace emissary, but they were also telling him how he would be a peace emissary. And he sat down dutifully, and they began, and he put his hand up and said, excuse me, fellas, because it was just all men, a particular performance of masculinity. And they turned to him in surprise, and he said, I think we should open with a prayer, don't you? And they were like, they were so shocked, they said nothing. And he recited a psalm from memory, justice and peace will embrace, truth and mercy will kiss. On you go, lads. <laughs> Unafraid, saying, I'll sit in the corner, but I won't do what you tell me. And I will not rise to escalation with escalation. I will meet your escalation and display of dominance 
with a display of something of curiosity, with something beautiful. Justice and peace shall embrace, truth and mercy shall kiss. Beautiful. I always get those mixed up in terms of the order, but it's, it's a gorgeous song. Um, when he'd meet you, he'd hold your hand, he'd shake your hand, and then he'd hang on to it and go, and how are you? And he always was interested in knowing really about your family, whether he'd met them or not. He'd be like, and how's your mum? And how's your dad? And I know you've lots of siblings. How are they? Are there nephews and nieces? How are they? Never invasive, but just wanting to know how is the whole, um, or what we would say, clan, clown of you. That's where the word comes to in English. from C-L-A-N, C-L-A-N-N is the Irish way of saying family. Um, or mean shirt means your kinsfolk, I suppose. I know I've heard people here use the word fanau, and so he was concerned with making sure to ask that question of people whose families he knew and families he didn't know, because he said, well, they're important to you, so I'll ask. Um, and this poem is called Parlour, because the first day I met him, it was in a parlour in a monastery, and parlour comes from an old French word, parler, meaning to speak, and people used to have a room in their house called the parlour. And I think um, it, certainly as we look at all the implications of COVID-19, it might be a bad idea to find a little corner or a couple of chairs and call them the parlour, place to speak. For those of you interested in poetic form, this takes a little, it steals a little bit from the book of Genesis in terms of thinking of morning and evening. The first day I met you, you asked questions in the parlour for an hour. Our history started then, and the rest is story. And it's evening now, you're gone, and I'm full of mourning. You held on to everybody's hands with your big hands. Soft skin, warm, and some kind of kind light in your eyes. Some small poem always hovering on your lips. Always anxious that righteousness and peace could kiss. Always moved to the truest truth that love could be woven into all of this, all of this. And even though it's still the evening and I'll be grieving for a while, the morning light you lit is burning like a fire all around, all around. Uh, he died very suddenly, he was 80, but it was a shock when he died. I was in Scotland when I heard the news, I was devastated. And then the brothers in the monastery asked me if I'd say something at the funeral, which um, I'm not somebody who cries gently. I ugly cry, and um, I ugly cried in front of a full monastery, which is magnificent. So, so nobody could hear the damn poem, because <laughs> I was weeping my way through it. Um, here's a poem called Specific. Um, I have a friend, Neil, who's from Walkworth. This is another one of the Love Between Men poems. Um, Neil is from Walkworth, and... I kind of used to always dream about having a best friend. And I kind of dreamt about who that best friend might be. I had plenty of friends. Um, and even within those complicated years of exorcisms and therapies and conservative Christian organizations, they were all also filled with joy and love and friends that I still keep and people who continue to believe things that I find difficult about me and my relationship with Paul, but whose life I've seen in all its breadth and goodness too. I'm comfortable enough to say to them, uh, your thoughts about me impact me more than they impact you. So we're, we're at that level where we can say that truthfully and where I can say, I would love you to change your mind. Um, uh, so we're happy to say that, but I'm also not waiting for that to imagine the possibility of human connection. It's limited. I'm not going to pretend that it's perfect. 
um, it limps along so many things do um, so I always imagined that a friend a deep friend would be somebody with whom I could speak about the story of my life I've told so few people and this is so much part of reconciliation that the private anxieties that we carry um, teach us the way that we can respond to anxiety and conflict and then that will impact the way we talk about conflicts in our society in our, in our nation's past uh, wounds and shames in the story of our past and our privileges the things that we can acknowledge about received inherited powers and the things that we might find difficult to acknowledge in terms of the marginalizations that we live with. Um, anyway, I met Neil and uh, Neil and I were roommates in Melbourne for a few years and uh, Neil's a carpenter from Walkworth, just north of Auckland. And he's like, yep, yeah, g'day. <laughs> and um, he's great fun. And every now and then I'd, I'd start to open up a deep conversation. He's like, ah, never thought of that. Um, do you want to go for ice cream? <laughs> and it wasn't, it wasn't that, it, there was just an immediate um, kinship. And I thought, why is this love of deep friendship where there was no worry about anything? Why hasn't this come in the form of another Padraig? Thank God it hadn't. We'd have murdered each other. But the imagination sometimes is that a friend will be so like you. And actually, um, Neil and I are quite different. And we've been friends for many years now. Um, he isn't very good at pronouncing the word specific. You know the way when kids are younger and they say the word specific? They say it in another way. He's not great at saying the word flowers. He explains it because um, there was a lot going on in the family, a lot of great things. His parents were good and generous and busy people. I think he's number four of five. And there was foster kids around as well. And so he was mostly out running feral around Walkworth, which he loved. And then he used to watch Bambi from time to time. And Bambi also can't say flower. So he credits Bambi for his incapacity to say the word flower. So as a gesture of love, I wrote a poem for him called Specific. He's a builder in Melbourne. And he, um, he now credits himself with being both a builder and a poet because there's a poem written about him. So. Yeah. Definitely keep that on the recording. <laughs> a specific. This is the way I remember the shapes that your mouth makes when you try to say words you can't say. This is the way your tongue and lips move and the way this imperfect language is perfectly you. This is the way you've never been able to say specific. You make it wide like the ocean, past the fence, past the flower-surrounded house that you built. This is the way you can't say flowers, but love flowers. This is the way I couldn't cope when I realised I was broken, and this is the way I moved away. And this is the way you said you weren't crying, you just had water in your eyes. And this is the way you didn't even try to dry those eyes and how I cried at last and how I didn't even laugh when you tried to say specific. This is the way you say you don't speak good England because England, like me, is half a world away, past the house and the flowers and the fence and the ocean that, like you, yes, fluent you is Pacific. <laughs> um, I read that to him at a bar in Melbourne.
And um, he just he started to wipe tears away from his eyes, and he goes, oh, I've got water in my eyes. <laughs> He's a magnificent uh, person um, who I love. Uh, I think I'll read two more, and then we can take a few questions, or we can decide that we've um, been sitting long enough, <laughs> whatever you want. Um, one of the things that you learn in conflict resolution is that conflict resolution can become its own and conflict can become its own extraordinarily entertaining drama. Can you wait till you believe? Wait till I tell you what they said to me then. And then I said this back to them, and then then. And that can happen in friendship groups. That can happen in terms of what you said to your principal or your boss or what you said to the person that works for you or your colleague or somebody on the bus or a neighbor. Or it can happen in terms of negotiation in businesses. It can happen from people who are in serious fights. And we get caught up in the drama of drama. And typically conflict, I think, can be analysed through the lens of theatre. There is a setting, there's characters, and there's a plot. And the setting is always fascinating in conflict, always. It's really intriguing. You can spend ages exploring and mapping it out. And the characters are equally as brilliant, you know, especially if they're wicked. You know? <laughs> it's magnificent. And if you're the wicked one, even better, because then you can narrate that. It's, it's extraordinary. But the plot in conflict... Is usually following along a pretty standard line, um, dominance, <laughs> and that becomes very boring when you see it over and over and over again. And part of the curiosity that I have is to think, what might it be like to be concerned and curious about something else? What if, rather than dominance and creativity, became our our interest as a human community? And I don't just mean interpretive dancing by creativity, interesting as that might be. Um, <laughs> And I don't just mean what, what things that are called the arts. I mean invention. I mean learning a new language. I mean um, supporting somebody whose um, needs you don't understand and finding a way where through intuition you speak a language that you didn't know you could speak with each other. I mean realising that in humdrum boredom there might be something that you're able to say, this is part of my faithfulness. Um, that's what I mean by creativity together with things that are creative. Uh, I think sometimes if you're involved in a life or work that has, um, where you only see fruit from it from time to time or outcome, it's a nice idea to have a hobby. Uh, I like cooking because it's pretty quick to see the outcome of it. I mean, I might work on a poem for three years, but like I can make a damn fine loaf of Irish bread in an hour and a half. And that's really important for somebody like me who rarely sees a fruit from the, the work that you do. And one of the questions that a friend of mine told me to ask in the context of conflict is to say to people who are saying they want to resolve their conflict, um, what are you going to do the day after it's resolved? What are you going to do? And people might go, well, I, I don't believe it ever will be resolved. And I'm like, well, so why are you trying to resolve it? Because <laughs> you might be part of perpetuating something. Um, you might not realize that actually you're, you're, even though you're part of a peace organization, peace organizations are full of conflict, that won't surprise you to know. Um, even though you're part of something that says it's for something, it's usually also for the other thing. It's frightened of the thing it wants. Desire is usually located in the future, and it's petrifying to realize what it might be like when you realize your desire. What would I want then? I've been so used to wanting what I don't yet have. Will I be okay? Um, I spent years wanting to be happy. And one day, sitting in a moment of prayer in front of an orthodox icon of Our Lady of Perpetual Help, 
I realised, oh, I'm feeling that happy. I blew out the candle, slammed the door as I left. I couldn't cope. Uh, it wasn't to say that life was perfect. I just realised I had a happiness that I thought, I've said for years I want this, and what, what's going to happen now? Who am I now when I've found a small corner of something that I've said I've always wanted? And that's a deep spiritual question, whatever you think about the question of God. And so asking ourselves the question about what will the first day after the war be like? Whether you started it or you're part of it, it doesn't matter. I think we always need to keep, I think my was Voltaire said, keep something beautiful in the mind or in the eye. And I think that's important because it is about thinking what after I'm only trying to repair things might I want to keep. It doesn't take away your energy for being involved in seeking a resolution of the conflict. I think it actually gives it um, surprise and creativity and brilliance to do it. So here's a little um, poem called After the War. After the war, there was silence, and we heard things our violence could not end. The quiet wind, the lapping water, after the war, we cried then most sadly, oh me, oh my, we have lost what we thought we so badly needed. All that we have fought for and now are left aware and bare and shameful. After the war, there was then no more of us, of me, left for fighting, as we lay sadly down and looked. After the war, we sang badly, with broken hands upon our breasts. Oh Lord, oh Lord, may we not forget. I, I think the more difficult a period of time we're in, politically, in terms of re recovering from the devastation and genocide of uh, colonisation, um, something particular to our own story, the more difficult that is, perhaps um, the more... Um, permission we should give ourselves to have something that keeps our mind on a song we might want to sing after some kind of resolution is found. I see in, I'm part of lots of activist groups to campaign against LGBT people being cured or being exercised and I see a lot of people in those groups who are doing extraordinary work but I'm always curious to say is it the only thing you talk about? And this is the same about any good cause. It's not bad causes or the flimsy causes that need to think this. It's the causes that are really, really worth fighting for. If it's really worth fighting for, it's also worthwhile doing something beautiful in your day. Because once you've achieved something of it, you probably won't achieve everything, but you'll achieve something of it. Um, let there be something that you say, that sustained me the whole way through it. Rather than say, I've been waiting for 20 years to take a deep drink of water. Um, you'll thirst. <laughs> you might um, die of thirst inside. And I, I think that's something important, not for new generations, for all generations. I, I, I am so guilty of this on a regular basis and need to be reminded regularly to think, what are you going to do after the war? I'll finish with a poem. In fact, I'll finish with the poem in a while. Are there questions? Hi. No, hi. Hi. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so uh, there's this conversation that I've listened to that you probably won't know about um, between John O'Donoghue and Christopher 
and it is, I've listened to it so many times. Oh, lovely. And I love it a lot. Mm. It's shaped a lot of things for me. Um, and so I wondered, he, one of the great things that I've gotten from it is his kind of sense of describing home. And um, so I wondered if, um, if you could tell us a story about home. Uh, yes, of course I can. Thanks, Ty. Just for the microphone, for anyone who's listening to Ty, saying he loves the conversation between Krista Tippett and John O'Donoghue, which is beautiful, actually. And um, John speaks so powerfully about home in that conversation. And you're asking me if I have something about home. Um, I have so many. Um, like, years ago, I was on the number 16 bus in Dublin, and I was late for meeting. It was before I had a mobile phone, and I was nervous about being late, and I didn't want to be late. And I couldn't get in touch with someone the people who were leading the meeting. In fact, a man from Wellington was leading the meeting in Dublin. And I, I hate being late, because at that stage I was so petrified of authority. I still am, probably. And um, I was sitting on the bus thinking, I'm going to be about 15 minutes late. That's not great, but it's not awful. And I was about, as I was about to get off, the woman next to me, who easily was in her 80s um, and tiny, and she turned to me and she said, any chance that you'll help me with me shopping, love? And I was like, well, I can't say no to somebody who's in their 80s. And she must have seen that I was kind of fidgeting and looking at my watch and all that. And I said, how long is it? And she goes, just a stop or two. I said, grand. Seven or eight stops later, we <laughs> got off the bus and we um, went up to the top of the bus where she had put her shopping. And I'd say her shopping was about as, it was in one of those string bags, about an apple and an orange or maybe a tin of peas in it. And so it wasn't a heavy bag. And so um, her clothes would have made weighed more. And so I took that, we walked along the road, she linked her arms in with me and trotted full of energy and power along next to me. And, and as we were walking along, um, I said to her, uh, well, as we were walking along, a woman came by and looked at her and looked at me and looked back at her, a younger woman, and said to her, how are you, Mary? <laughs> and there was an enormous amount of information and curiosity and... Um, kind of community gossip, a kind of a PhD worth of insinuation and innuendo in that how you know. And um, Mary very quickly said, some girls never lose their touch. <laughs> and I said to her, I think I've been had. And she goes, you certainly have, son. <laughs> and then she invited me in for a cup of tea. And thought, oh, I wish to God I said yes. God only knows what would have happened and then got all kinds of educations. And I went back to my meeting and I cannot remember what that meeting was about. Something in AIM, some administrative detail. Um, but I've never forgotten her. I'm sure she's dead now. I mean, this was in 1995. So, I mean, she might be alive. She might be 107. But, um, and if she is, I'm sure she is still looking out for naive Egypts on the bus. And the I would love to find her family. And I tell you that story because... It's an Irish story, but Dublin isn't my city, and I was nervous and I was late, but there was something in the context of being half at home, I'm in Ireland, so I'm not a foreigner, but I'm not in my own city, and being awkward and hating being late, and the way that she cajoled me back to myself. Mm. And I think home can be two things. It can be a location, of course it can, um, but lots of people move and have done for many years. It's not just recently. I think it's the luxury of the privilege to say that, oh God, people move around a lot these days, forgetting that you know millions of people were displaced through slavery. That was moving around a lot too, just not with any choice. And so home can be about place, but if it's only about place, then we're screwed. Home can also be about a question of 
belonging with yourself and with someone else. And that might be permanent. Paul always says to me that um, we are his home. And I find that so moving. And he is my home too. And I also think that it can be about a quality of relationship with yourself. And so I think that's something to, something to think about when it comes to the question of home. Something that makes you go, ah, right, here we are. Next time. Other questions? Um, you've talked a lot about like conflict resolution and things. Um, I was just wondering, what war are you waiting to end? <laughs> um, Charlotte asked, what war am I waiting to end? Thinking of the question of conflict. That's such an interesting question. Um, so for a long time, and certainly for people involved in creativity, I mean, wars can come in all kinds of complicated fashions. It can be a goal that you're waiting to say, life will begin after that. And, and so sometimes waiting for a publishing deal can be that, or waiting to hear back from somebody who's going to give you, publish a poem or publish something like that. And um, after years of publishing, I've realized to say, I need to get to the stage with poems and books that I write to look at it and to go, well, I'd be proud of it if I release this as a PDF and make 50 quid from it. And a few people read it, or maybe nobody does, but I go, that was that needed to be written, and I'm glad to have put both vulnerability and craft to that project. And that's been uh, a war, um, or a conflict, or a waiting for life to begin that I've been putting away for a few years, and I'm so glad for it, because um, the arts world and any achievement world can be filled with jealousy and envy, and um, I mean, psychoanalytically, jealousy is, oh, I want a bit of that, and envy is, I want to destroy that. And you can get both, um, from you and at you. And um, that's been something I've been working on for the last few years, noticing it in me, noticing it around me, and then thinking, what does it mean to respond with generosity in those moments? Um, rather than thinking, oh, why was I looked over, or why didn't I apply for that damn scholarship, or all those kinds of things. To just find yourself to go, well, let me treat this with the creativity, knowing that ultimately what's important in a life is love. But, you know, not whether you get a book deal. Yeah. And not to put away, I mean, Book deals are interesting for people interested in book deals, right? <laughs> Keep on working at it. But I think it'll aid you to find a mature relationship with it. And whatever that achievement is that you want, little or large, a lifetime of achievement or a month of achievement, it's worthwhile having a spiritual relationship with that. And by spiritual, I don't even necessarily mean prayer. I mean, spiritual is something that brings your attention to the quality of your breathing as you think about that. If you're thinking about something that you deeply desire... What's your breathing like? Are you breathing deeply or are you beginning to feel like you've been running? Spirit comes from the word spirare, which means breath. Um, ruach in Hebrew and Arabic is a word for God and a word for breath and spirit. And so spirituality is ultimately about what is the quality of my breathing here and how is my breathing helping me? Spirituality is a profoundly meaty, embodied practice. It's not about abstract things. It's about doing that. Thanks. Uh, one more question and then I finish with the poem. Gesundheit. <laughs> Hi, I'm Ellie. Um, I was just wondering, obviously, poetry is quite like an interpretive form, and you could say to a degree there is no bad poetry, but what do you think makes a good poem? So, Ellie, yeah. asking about what makes a good poem. Um, 
I like the way you set out that question to say, look, it's up to the people who are interpreting it. It, it depends as to what you mean. Uh, I know this um, amazing woman in Scotland who has lived a, a difficult, difficult life. There's been death and suicide and mental health and self-isolating for years rather than a few weeks in the story and at a retreat once and the education system failed her the social benefit system failed her she came along to retreats that I ran in Scotland before being out at night was too difficult uh, both for personal reasons in terms of sight but also for reasons in terms of being a woman out at night um, for whom mobility wasn't great she can walk but thought I won't be able to outrun anyone and one day she said to me, you know, there was one great doctor in my life who helped me greatly. And I wrote a poem for him. And she said, I'd like to, you to give you, I'd like to give you a copy of the poem. Because when I gave it to the, she'd handwritten it for the doctor. And he'd been so moved that he said, would you like me to get it typed out for you? And that was a big deal. This, this isn't long ago. And um, he had done it himself. Or I don't know who had done it. Typed it out and printed a, copy, a few copies and given them to her. And she gave me one of the copies. And you could look at that poem and think, where is your meter? Why are you overusing certain metaphors? Do you know why? You know, I wouldn't even dream to think of that poem. It's framed on my wall, or not framed, it's stuck up on my wall, where I write. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a nobility of the spirit. I saw her recently at a funeral of a mutual friend of ours. The friend who brought us together. I was so glad to see her. It was during the daytime of the funeral, and I was so pleased to see her. And so. For me, what really interests me is the question of the human hunger that's driven the piece of art. And, and for me, the question is, is, have I come in contact with it? Um, rather than, has the poet got it in it? Do you know? And maybe the poem isn't for me. That's all that I can say about it. It's not for me. Somebody says to me, what might be a few ways I'd want to improve it? I'd also always want to say, well, what's at the heart of your poem? What's the hunger? Maybe you want to take out some of the metaphors and the adjectives and adverbs. Not to say that they're crap, but just look at the raw skeleton of the poem and have a word bank over to the side and think, which of these am I going to put back in? Because sometimes I think people think that poetry or prayer is benefited by fancy language. It's not. Um, it's benefited by an authenticity of the spirit, an authenticity of the tongue, the capacity to say something that when somebody hears it says, I needed that. It might only be one person, it might be a million people. Um, and so... Sometimes I think people have just gotten in the way of themselves. And so I always want to say when I'm editing people or helping people edit their poetry, do that. Just take out some of the words, put them to the side. Lovely. You can put them all back in if you want. But just look at it as it is in without its um, decoration. An overly decorated Christmas tree, perhaps. You might want to look at the shape of the Christmas tree and just see what's there. And then, and then often people will go, oh, I want to put this one back in and that one back in. And that's their own choice. Um, but they've seen sometimes what their poem has known, but what they haven't known yet. And poems have their own intelligences, and it can sometimes take the writer of the poem quite a while to figure it out. And that's why anybody interested in poetry or writing, we need a community, a community of people who are interested in the same art, people who have skill in terms of editing and form, but also people who share some kind of capacity to speak with you about the question of hunger at the heart of the piece of writing. I hope that's helpful. So I'll read a poem and then do you have more things to say, Tony? Plenty. Plenty. <laughs> um, when I was 11, Alex Ray came into the school with a book that his parents had given him 
and it was a book explaining the facts of life. Is that what you call it here, too? When you're younger, maybe, maybe it's a little bit old, but certainly that's what we call it, the facts of life. And I heard about it in the class. It went around like wildfire in the class. Um, and I remember hearing about it going, I'll definitely not be doing that. And I was so right. It was magnificent. <laughs> it took me a long time to come to terms with it. Um, and I also thought, it's also utterly incorrect. And um, somebody said to the teacher, this magnificent teacher we had, she was just filled with everything that you'd want a brilliant teacher to be. And um, Miss Sheehan was her name. And somebody said to her, Miss, it's not true, is it? And she said, you'll have to learn one day. And I was devastated uh, to just think, oh, God. Anyway, here's a poem called The Facts of Life. And I, I suppose I want to... I know that lots of people here come with a strong faith tradition, some people moving towards it, some people with great wisdom moving a little bit further back to get some spirituality in the context of the question of authority in your life. And each of those are blessed by uh, the pursuit of the deepest love that there is. Um, All directions that we're going in the question of that. The idea that the Bible is ever consistent about where to find the question of God and what following God looks like. It looks like protest and it looks like fighting and it looks like laying down arms and it looks like writing furious poems and writing reconciliation poems and doing all kinds of things and writing apocalyptic material that makes absolutely no sense but helps you feel at home in a war. A South Sudanese friend of mine said once that when he was moving between... um, refugee camp to refugee camp that were being taken over by militia from the age of 11 to uh, 17 or 18, that he loved to turn to the book of Revelation because he said, whoever wrote this also knew the same things I know. He's a theologian now, and he still looks back to go, I was onto something when I was reading those apocalyptic texts like that. So uh, whatever direction we're going, if uh, even towards hell, um, the Christian scriptures and the Hebrew scriptures and the Quran are so interesting with their profound generosity toward the openness of the spaces toward which the God can be found. So this is a blessing for you in the midst of um, not knowing much, me and all of us, um, being unsure in complicated times like we are now, and finding our rooting together, the facts of life. That you were born, and you will die That you will sometimes love enough and sometimes not. That you will lie, if only to yourself. That you will get tired. That you will learn most from the situations you did not choose. That there will be some things that move you more than you can say. That you will live. That you must be loved. That you will avoid questions most urgently in need of your attention. That you began as the fusion of a sperm and an egg of two people who once were strangers and may well still be. That life isn't fair. That life is sometimes good and sometimes even better than good. That life is often not so good. That life is real. And if you can survive it, well, survive it well, with love and art and meaning given where meaning is scarce, that you will learn to live with regret, that you will learn to live with respect, that the structures that constrict you 
may not be permanently constricting, that you will probably be okay, that you must accept change before you die, but you'll die anyway. And so you might as well live and you might as well love. You might as well love. You might as well love. Before we leave, I just wondered, um, as we as we go out into the world, and obviously, as you've mentioned, these interesting and troubling times um, that we, we find ourselves in, you have spent so much of your life, um, and this is something that you say, learning to hold our differences differently. And uh, so as we leave tonight, I wondered whether, um, as a parting gift to us, you could share some wisdom to us about holding our differences differently as we step out into the world this week. Hmm. Um, years ago, somebody invited me to ask the question in a conflict with somebody that I was in. a. It was a misunderstanding between colleagues, so it wasn't anything you know, long-standing and awful. But this... Um, this wisdom that I was taught was long-standing. Um, me and this other person were in a conflict and our boss um, was uh, Mary Lynch is her name, she's the chair and, or the director of mediation in Northern Ireland, one of the finest mediators I know and she um, said, the two of you talk out your conflict and we were doing it and we were doing it and going back and forth and she said, like you realise that the two of you are repeating what you're saying already and then when you hear what the other is saying, you're, you know, jumping onto it. And then you're asking a question to which you plainly think you already know the answer, or hoping that they'll say the thing that you think is the answer, is because you've got perfect repast to it right in there. So, like, great, enjoy your performance. And Mary Lynch said, um, do you have a question to which you know you don't know the answer that you want to ask each other? And I'm like, bloody hell. So I think that's a way to hold our differences differently. Because mm-hmm. um, so much within the, the project of holding difference is about, um, is about dominance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to show you why my difference is a bit better than yours or totally better than yours. Either or, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and what, what Mary was saying is to say, demonstrate that you don't know entirely what the other person is thinking you're coming from. Mm-hmm. Ask something where you'll actually have to go I wonder what they're going to say, and you'll have to listen to it. And to make that a question that isn't a trap, and isn't a death trap, mm-hmm. um, and that is something that is open to curiosity. Um, I uh, see in uh, plenty of ages and in plenty of places in justice-oriented culture, and people who think that somebody else is on the wrong side of something. So I see people saying things about conservative Christians who don't approve of LGBTQI relationships, of trans and non-binary and intersex people's lives, I hear people saying that basically anybody who comes from that point of view has nothing positive whatsoever to contribute to the question of the human good. Mm. Like, bloody hell, we're all screwed if that's the case. you know? Because I'm not on the right side of everything. I've got stuff to learn. And if I'm going to be punished for not having learned everything before I learn it, no, eventually the Everybody Belongs group will be empty we'll all have cast each other out. What the book of Leviticus knows is that in as much as there's rules for casting people out, there's needs for mechanisms for finding people to come back in. I'm not talking about things for which there should be um, 
criminal sentences. I'm talking about the ways within which we talk about how to do human community together. You have the wrong opinion about Beyonce. I know people who have had death threats. I don't know. I've heard of people who have had death threats about that. Um, you know, because because I understand. Beyonce is magnificent. She means a lot to some people. They have made her into a god. And actually, just like any god, people are willing to die for that god. That's nothing to do with Beyonce. She's more brilliant than that. And so, uh, I think to ask yourself a question and ask the other a question, the answer to which you know you don't know, so that there might be the possibility of unfolding surprise. Mm. Well, Dirk, thank you so much for what you've shared with us tonight on behalf of everyone here. Um, just such a gift to have you. Thank you. Um, thank you. Thanks for coming. So thank you very much.